Machado and I find ourselves, appropriately enough, in a refitted Victorian in Cheyenne, Wyoming. First built as a cattle baron's folly, then converted to a boarding house for unmarried women, it's now run as an opulent but gloomy bed and breakfast. We're in a sitting room in a princess tower overlooking the thick, obliterating snow. This tower room, Machado tells me, is where the women boarders were able to lounge uncorseted in each other's company, outside the scrutiny of men. I make a joke about intruding on their ghosts de Chevalet. This earns me an abrupt, chilly laugh, which could be described only generously as half-hearted. Lightning recap. In a perfectly normal interview with Carmen Maria Machado, where everything is fine by Theodore McCombs, an interviewer interviews an author, and it isn't normal and nothing is fine. You have a little time. We have a little podcast. This is Short Story Short Podcast. I am sitting in a room today as Christopher J. Garcia here with... I am doing a handstand on a roof as uh, Christy L. Baxter because I got to one-up you. They say never work with people. <laughs> I am people, as a matter of fact, unfortunately. Yes. And now this is really important because we're going to get kind of heavy into the weeds today. Hey, Christy. Yes. Too. We are getting into the weeds of a perfectly normal interview with Carmen Maria Machado, where everything is fine by theater, Theodore McCombs. I am, being me, uh, basically Abed from the show Community. <laughs> and as Abed, I am hella postmodernist and exceptionally meta. And I am fairly certain a perfectly normal interview with Carmen Maria Machado, where everything is fine, is the single most postmodernist thing I have ever read. Yeah, it is remarkably postmodern in in so many different ways. In in even just the way that it interacts with the internet at large within these the links that are placed throughout. Yeah, and that's actually fascinating. If you look at a book that I also hold as sort of one of the pinnacles, actually the two books I sort of hold as the pinnacles of postmodern literature that is uh the Third Policeman by that guy, Flan O'Brien, <laughs> and House of Leaves, there, because of the limitation of the form of a book, they actually use footnotes in the very same way that here you're seeing the use of links, exterior of the story, to bring you into an area where you are in a place that is all of the form. What this is saying is the idea of this piece is this is what happens when you put in this unusual content into the form that we expect to discover when we are interacting with a 
web-based interview with an author. It does very much play with our expectations, especially in the gradual way that the links are placed, because at first they're just normal links. You know, the first link is to a Wikipedia article on the Gothic writer who wrote the novel Carmilla and so on and so forth. And at first they're, they're normal and then they start to get less normal, less perfectly normal, we might say. And to the point where you're being taken to, you know, uh, and I, I think it's an interview with uh, Lady Gaga and uh, you're even an acronym, not an acronym maker, an anagram maker <laughs> and, and so on and so forth. And it seems like they, they start to become little clues to what's actually going on here in the story. That's right. And the brilliant use of the 404 redirect. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's oh. how smart that is. <laughs> yes. It's no, oh, there's nothing here. Nothing such, no such thing exists. And you could think that that's just one other facet of the internet. How many of us have cl- clicked on a link that ended up being a, a 404 page because the page no longer existed or something was, was wrong te- technology-wise? Uh, but in this case, it's because it it doesn't, it never existed. <laughs> yes. And what's brilliant about the format is when you put in anything in this format, you automatically start to make connections to other things you've read. Great example here. And there's going to be a lot of talk about community in this episode. So <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, one, uh, how do Paratext like an introduction or la fanuse, la fanuse, prologue for that matter, function to broaden or narrow the main text. And then the response, they create space where there is none, like a tick burrowing in the skin. They create space where there was none, like a tick burrowing in the skin. Her repetition feels robotic and it feels out of place in a regular interview where we've already gotten a couple of moments that are strange. And at that point, I'm thinking, oh, wow, he's interviewing an android. Um, but, but then it gets even stranger. And I think that one of the things that were happening is we're made so, I don't want to say comfortable, but we know the path we're on, but the contextual path that we're on, we know the contextual path but the content path we're on is so disjointed with what we expect to be experiencing. It's just another way that that this piece just takes our expectations and basically drop kicks them out the window in a wonderful, wonderful way. I can't remember exactly at which point I started realizing that I needed to start looking at the links and actually going to them and seeing what's going on here. But it's just, it, it plays with your head and that only sort of increases the surreal surreality of it. That's a hard word to say. It's not my fault, <laughs> but it just makes you feel more disconnected from reality. Like for instance, when uh, the, the question from the interviewer ends, do you want to elaborate? And it takes you, the link on elaborate takes you to the site zoomquilt.org. That's just this never ending 
picture, like you're, you're just constantly zooming in and zooming in and it never, ever ends, which is just, and it's a very surreal picture. It's not just a, a picture of a person. We've got like a robot in a tower and red roads that look like there's some sort of metal leading into somewhere and then mountains and it's nutso and awesome and a great piece of, of art to be found on the internet. And it just adds to that feeling of something is different and not right here that very slowly and expertly builds throughout. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right there. And again, with this whole metatextualism, a large part of the interview is dealing with queer theory, which is a massive part of postmodernist literary theory. So you have the most meta reflection you can possibly have when you are <laughs> doing a postmodernist piece, which is dealing with postmodernist literary theory, and particularly one of the most postmodernist literary theories you could possibly have. It's a postmodern onion. And I hate onions, but I like the story. <laughs> I love the story. And what's great is that it is a mythology that is built in much the same way as, again, House of Leaves, um, where you have this sort of work that is being referenced that you know is real, but it is questionable as to how that exists in our world. And that's where it gets fascinating, is working with this strange sort of disconnect between the imagined, the reimagined, and the actual. And, you know, that sort of the letters in particular that she references here, are they real? Well, they're, we're fairly certain that they're not real to us because we know that all the links are broken and this seems to be a genre story, but are they real to her? Yeah, I think they are. I think they're real within the world of this story, which is only one step removed from our world, even in its postmodern, postmodernism, postmodernist. So I think it's, it's, it, they're, they're definitely real in the story. And, and I believe that, that she definitely believes in them. And they do become almost essential to the, the plot in that it really starts to take a turn into the, the what the fuck when he starts asking about the letters. Did you bring Veronica Housel's letters with you? Are they downstairs in your room? Are they in your suitcase, for example? Are they in the front flap of your red rolling suitcase, for example? Wow, inappropriate interviewer is inappropriate. <laughs> and there's, there's an absolutely sinister moment um, where uh, uh, that would be too many doubles you have to tell me, CMM, no, not in the least, TM unable to vocalize, CMM, much better, PM, unable to vocalize, CMM, fine, speak. And oh, see, go ahead, sorry. And then goes into just where they were. And that's such a, a sinister seeming thing. It's as if she has willed him not to speak, but she probably has depending on your reading. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe that she has. And when you said sinister moment, I flash, it's interesting where our brains go. You flash the moment when she forces him not to speak, 
I thought you were going to talk about the moment when he is talking about wanting to show her the picture of the author that he thinks maybe looks like her. And then he says, if you lean close, do you mind if I come over there? And she says, I'd rather you not. And he says, no, no, it's okay. I'll crouch here, right here. You see it? Am I too close? You see the likeness. You're not even looking, Carmen Maria Machado. And there is something so disturbing about that because he immediately violates the boundary that she said. She's like, no, you just stay there. And he goes, and I'm, I'm going to come over there. I'm going to crouch right next to you creepily. And so it's, it's interesting what we each take to be as sinister. And I take your example of, of the sinisterness, the, her forcing him not to speak, as almost a direct response to his violation of her statement that she didn't want him sitting next to her. That could be true. I guess I give the, the interviewer the benefit of the doubt because I do so many interviews. And, uh, <laughs> and occasionally I do need to squat next to someone and just make sure I study the lines of their face very, very closely. You're going to be getting a lot of uh, no's to your interview requests <laughs> if you keep that up. <laughs> Actually, but that makes the ones who say yes that much more satisfying. <laughs> that is true. That is true. This is a remarkably strange, beautiful story. At the same time, again, open resolution, sure. But it also has a sort of sense that it exists until it stops. And that's what's fascinating to me is that we know how interviews end. Interviews end with a wrap-up question uh, that is grand and big and that sort of usually just punts you off to whatever the thing you're promoting is. Uh, you might ask, you know, do you have anything to add? And then the last, the last answer is usually, well, you know, I'm working on X, Y, and Z. Here, it's super simple. Uh, she's coming. Can't you see? She's here. And I think she's been here all along. <laughs> and what's great is that this is one of those stories that rewards multiple readings. To the point where <laughs> I went back and I read the whole thing three or four times now. Uh, very productive morning. Um, <laughs> and as I started going through the general page, this is on electric lit, uh, reading into everything, um, which is the perfect title for a, a publication that features this story. Every link I saw, I thought was a fake of some sort. Yeah, it's really interesting because uh, Carmen Maria Machado talks about this kind of cultural gaslighting that happens. And meanwhile, I think we're being gaslit not to trust our own clicks on links anymore. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, the, the way you establish those wonderful things is by having, you know, you think if someone puts something at the same level, a level at which you are willing to link to them, they have sort of at least somewhat similar weight. So when you have a link to Joanna Russ, uh, for example, uh, one of the great literary theorists in science fiction and genre in history, when you link there, and then you also have the link to Born This Way, 
and to the beautiful uh, in the dream house uh, link. And then you have links to art, uh, one beautiful surrealist piece I with the eyes on the flower stalks and, you know, all of it sort of starts to pile up that you cannot trust your own expectations. It was to the point where I started wondering whether it was possible if the author had gone and either edited or just created out of whole cloth some Wikipedia articles. <laughs> yeah. And I would love that. <laughs> I, I would love that too. I don't think he went that far. And if he did, he can't trust that they would stay. And I think that's, that's too big of a risk. Or it could just add to the surreality and subverting of expectations one way or the other. I'm not sure. But it, it just, it doesn't matter if he did or not because the, the story itself makes you start wondering and that's enough. That's enough for you to lose your footing in reality. And in, especially in our increasingly internet-based reality. Correct. <laughs> and this is a story that it cannot exist in another form. You cannot do a reading of this and have it have the same impact. And that is, that sets it apart from anything else we've read before, even a study in Emerald, which was very much about the presentation, still works if you go to an audio setting or if you just read in a regular book. Here, you need that externalities. You need those connections. And that makes this more akin to, I'd say, a work of performance art than a traditional short story. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we, we struggled a little bit with what exactly to use as our opening kind of quote from the story that we always do because I really feel like there there is a little bit of a high barrier to entry in this in this tale Mm -hmm. because it starts off very much like you know with an an introduction that an interview in a magazine would have and just describing the the work that overall this this story is kind of about and so it felt like we would if we did that, it felt like we would be possibly mistaken for just describing a book that we're not even really going to talk about specifically. <laughs> so, and yeah, it definitely, I could see this being done, being acted out and being such a messed up, wonderful thing to see. <laughs> True. Actually, I was going to pitch, uh, I would do the opening reading and it would be this. If you enjoy reading electric literature, join our mailing list. We'll send you the best of EL each week, and you'll be the first to know about upcoming submission periods and virtual events. <laughs> Perfect. That would have been actually kind of, kind of appropriate. Because <laughs> it actually, and that's the thing is, that's still there. It's basically lying to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this story. It really is just, it's, it's both fun and it's thoughtful. You can have readings of it all over the place. Uh, You could actually, that wonderful violation of space, very much uh, in line with queer theory, with feminist literary theory, all of it, just in this compact, dense, intelligently done piece. When I first read this story, I was just kind of looking around for what 
we might choose for our next story. Uh, and I, I, like I said, it has a little bit of a high barrier to entry because I'd never heard of Carmilla. I didn't know about a lot of this stuff. So I kind of had to get myself, it, it's hard to get settled into the story, but man, once you do, I was just thinking immediately, I was, I was attached to the story and that we needed to talk about it. And I was so eager. I was like, we need to talk about this now. I am glad you did. <laughs> hey, Christy. <laughs> yes. What are we going to read next week? Ah. Okay, so next week we will be reading Repent Harlequin, said the TikTok man by Harlan Ellison. And this one's fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading that. Uh, and uh, this has been, I, I'm still feeling a little like I can't trust my clicks after oh. reading the story again and talking about it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> They've done their job. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, this hath been short story. Shortest podcasteth. Huzzah! <laughs> Tis a podcast. Yes.